Listener Production. I acknowledge the lands and the waters of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their ancestors past and elders present. I acknowledge that the First Nations across the continent have never ceded sovereignty and that the First Nations are the first lawmakers. Welcome. This is Black Matters, a podcast that is about First Nations matters and why they matter. I'm Teela Reid, First Nations advocate, senior lawyer and proud Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman. Again, I'm joined by my long-term friend, MC from the Hit Radio Network. Now, I don't, I don't think that it's an understatement to suggest that it has been an incredibly challenging and incredibly difficult and probably an incredibly painful, you know, 10 days to two weeks for First Nations people in this country. And it's felt like forever ago that this referendum to have a voice for First Nations people enshrined in our constitution was first announced. As everybody knows, it's now over. That book has sadly closed. A lot of us were watching TV screens, flicking through phones, social media feeds, and we were watching the bulk of the votes come through. And sadly, with all states and territories, excluding the ACT, voting against the proposed Indigenous voice to parliament. In terms of percentages, we're talking around 60% of people that voted no against The Voice with 40% in favour of it. Now, on this podcast, if you're a regular listener on Black Matters, we've always encouraged people to do your research, make an informed decision and vote whatever your heart tells you. However, look, on that night, the 14th of October, I'm not going to speak on behalf of you, but I would imagine, like me, it was a shattering night. It was a shattering outcome. So I guess I wanted to start this week's episode of the podcast. How are you feeling? I guess, you know, as the results, as you described, were rolling in, it's pretty shattering considering that this moment was decades, years, even two and a half centuries in the making. And it felt like how quickly the votes were counted, it was over in a flash. And I think that was a lot to sit with and process given the enormous amount of advocacy from First Nations peoples that had gone into that. And I'd had a few friends over that day and that night, both First Nations and non-Indigenous Australians and one of my friends goes to me and looked at me and she's like, Tita, I think that you're in shock. And I was like, I don't know. I didn't really know what to feel watching, especially the commentary coming in and we were flicking between a few channels. Um, But yeah, how was your reaction? You know, you and I have spoken more than once And I've said that leading up to the day, I felt really apprehensive. And that's probably because of the way the conversation was being played out in the media and the noise that was around that we've addressed and we spoke about with Stan Grant a couple of weeks ago. Great episode. If you haven't listened, go back and check that out. Um, But on the day itself, when I went and voted, I don't know if it was naive of me, but but there was a hint of optimism. And that's not to say that I thought the yes was going to you know, storm through the gates with an overwhelming result. But I I wondered if late 
the overall sentiment was starting to change. And I'm chatting to the people at the polling booth and, and spoke to the people, the yes campaigners out the front, and they felt really positive. And, and a lot of people coming in were, were, were feeling really positive. So there was a part of me that was at least hopeful. Um, and then, like you say, I think it was the nature of how quickly it came. It was like when we got the votes, there was never really a debate. There was never really a conversation because it was so hard and fast, sorry, no. And I felt like I was shattered. Like I was, mm. I was shattered. Um, I felt disappointed. I felt embarrassed, I guess, and felt great sadness, to be honest. And I felt, I, I instantly thought about, my thought straight away was these First Nations kids that have got to go to school on Monday, What's, mm. what does this mean for them? How, how, how is this going to impact them? And I think about all of the people, and we've had plenty of people on this podcast that have, you know, advocated strongly for yes and the hard work that's gone into this because it hasn't just been, you know, a referendum that Albo said we're doing it. As you said, this has been years in the making that was given to the Australian people via the Uluru Statement from the Heart and there's been so many years, blood, sweat and tears that have gone to this and ultimately was quite a simple request. It was just mm. let us make decisions that directly impact us. And that was kind of all that was being asked. Yeah, no, you know, it was certainly a shameful day for this nation. That was my immediate reaction was thinking about the kids in my kinship. How do we prepare them now to walk in the world on land that is their land, mm -hmm. where they belong, where their sovereignty has never been ceded, and where we know now, overwhelmingly, the nation has said no to hearing their voices into the future. I just thought that was my immediate, like, kind of, urgent reaction was to really care for the kids, have conversations with them. We're hearing shocking stories around the country, in schools, in communities. We are fortunate to live in an electorate that voted yes. However, there are a lot of Indigenous peoples who live in communities that overwhelmingly voted no. Mm. And having conversations about how we help them navigate through this difficult time and now we know what will be, I think at least one to two decades of, of trying to pick up the pieces of what the nation just said, and it is a shameful act. Mm. We pursued reconciliation in good faith. This idea of recognition of First Nations peoples in the Constitution wasn't necessarily about us it was so much about the fact that given the nation had never actually undergone that task, it was most certainly for non-Indigenous Australians to appropriately answer that question. And I think the denial, the no vote, is an active denial of the truth of our history. And I think that that is going to have collateral impacts for the next generation. And I think that 
What is so important now is making sure that we are creating spaces where they feel strong, where they can continually cultivate the care that we have as First Nations peoples. And now knowing we have millions of allies who, while they stood in solidarity, I hope that that continues to move forward because I think that we can reflect on that time as people who stood for the truth of the nation's narrative in endorsing a First Nations voice was that we stand on the right side of history. And that is the chapter that we have written in terms of walking forward. And I do think that our children will be able to take away from that hope and optimism and strength, knowing that they aren't alone now on this journey. There were certain corners of the First Nations community that that called for a week of silence and mourning after the results and the no. Uh, do you think do you think that was a good idea? Was that the right move? In times like what we have just endured, I don't think that we can really judge people for whether they chose the week of silence or whether, they spoke up Mm. and demanded to continually be heard. And I think, you know, in the diversity of responses to that moment, we also got to witness the diversity of our community once again. And there were some actual things that happened in the political landscape that made people breaking that silence so much more urgent, which was, you know, the hypocrisy, the outright betrayal of First Nations communities, a no campaign on this notion of division and that this would cause, you know, division to our democracy and it couldn't be further from the truth. But the irony is the same week that the no vote came in, they actually used First Nations communities as a political football to single out Aboriginal communities, um, calling for a royal commission into only Aboriginal remote communities in relation to the safety of our children. And it's just like, you literally can't, I think, ignore our voices and think that you can speak on our behalf in the same breath. And I do hope that people um, are more vigilant about the kinds of tactics that we're seeing play out here, uh, because I think that's the political danger that we will be in now. Now that the week of silence has ended, there was a drafted open letter from the Yes campaign. It's pretty upfront. Uh, Also an unsigned letter. Uh, here's Here's a tiny bit of that letter. We know that the No campaign was funded and resourced by conservative and international interests who have no stake or genuine interest in the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. This included resurrecting scare campaigns seen during the 1990s against land rights, but the scale of deliberate disinformation and misinformation was unprecedented, and it proliferated unchecked on social media, repeated in mainstream media, and unleashed a tsunami of racism against our people. We know that the mainstream media failed our people, favouring a false sense of balance over facts. Do you think this letter pretty much sums it up perfectly? There are a number of letters and statements by very powerful Aboriginal lands councils or, as we've seen here, a collective statement after the week of silence. Look, I think First Nations communities and leaders and collectives are well within their right to turn the mirror back on this nation and set the facts straight. There's been commentary in the media about 
the tone of it or, you know, where are we at now around reconciliation and that movement? And I think that it's very important when we're trying to understand what just happened to lay it down for people to read. One of the other things as well is the news cycle after the referendum, when some leaders went into a week of silence. Essentially, media just kind of stopped being doing their jobs. That's, that's kind like, of why... being forensic about the analysis. It's kind of why I was asking, do we think the <sighs> week's silence was the best idea? Because sadly, the talk completely dropped off the radar. It almost completely disappeared. Well, silence is a sacred act in First Nations communities. And when it is invoked... It should be respected. I think there is a different issue here that has been pointed out, and that's the way in which the media leans on this false sense of balance and impartiality, and by doing so, continues to peddle lies and misinformation and disinformation. And while some leaders went into silence over that week, It was not opening the door for the media to completely go blank on doing their job in our democracy and actually putting the information on what has just occurred. Like what is so bizarre to me is I don't think that Australians really realise the legal and political implications of what's just happened. The ignorance of acknowledging and recognising the First Peoples is a rubber stamp to continuing colonisation. You know, while some people say, for example, it wasn't recognition that we weren't against, it was the voice. You can't have both it both ways when yeah. it comes to First Nations self-determination. You know, that was certainly as well another um, misleading, I think, piece of information that got totally warped up in the media where now you have everyday Australians going... For example, and I, I, I outright reject this argument, which is, you know, I voted no, not because I don't care about Aboriginal issues, but because I just didn't understand the voice. And it's like, that's not how recognition works. It's also not um, a confusing concept. This whole idea was never confusing from the start, <laughs> right? It was never confusing. No. It was not hard to wrap your head around. We're literally trying to do the same thing that many developed countries around the world have done years and years and years ago and we're lacking so far behind. Look, um... And we are, we're, we're, we're more behind now. Yeah. We're an outlier in liberal democracies. We are such an embarrassment to the world, I think, when it comes to, as well, what we're going to see for the next number of years is... We're all equal before the law. We live in this great democracy. And it's like, okay, well, how do you justify, for example, another Aboriginal death in custody in the same week of that result? And for example, those people that seem to care about our issues were suddenly silent and weren't saying much about another Aboriginal death in custody. It's interesting you like, say that. Uh, it's gaslighting us. On, on the day of the referendum, uh, and maybe in the couple of days leading up to it, like my social media feeds were filled with people, you know, 
I'm voting yes, I'm doing this sharing, sharing uh, images and statements and things from other accounts on social media. My timeline was filled with it. On the day, I voted yes, I voted yes, this is great. Then the results come through. This is shocking, I'm embarrassed, what's going on? And then after a couple of days, it just completely disappeared. And I kind of, yep. where were these people months ago when this first started? Where were these people having these conversations to maybe convince the people that were morons and voted no because they didn't understand it? And what, because it's gone, oh, the fight's over, whatever, I can just go back to doing what I was doing and, and not be seen to be supporting this publicly because it's not in vogue now. And that's what I think makes our country so dangerous when it comes to First Nations rights and understanding the truth and history of um, our story and also, you know, on the one hand, we are such a powerful democracy but at the cost of the First Peoples now. And to be able to kind of just care about things when it's trendy and then step away from the conversation when it's not impacting um, on you, it's such a privilege and I hope that people wake up to themselves yeah. and actually continue to be part of this conversation. I think as well, in terms of the result, it affirmed, I think, what many black followers already knew, which is that we live in a very racist society, one that is built on our exclusion and we live and breathe it and feel it every day because it's so insidious in this place. And I think now, for example, the result surely reveals to, I think in particular, allies, the actual reality that we live in every day in this place because it's it's not an easy country to wake up in if you are a First Nations person who has never ceded sovereignty to your land. Will it ever happen again? Will we push for constitutional change again, whether it's something similar to what was just voted down or, or a newer version? Is this something that will be revisited down the line or, or for the moment, is it just completely off the cards? So when it comes to the Australian constitution, I think that the result of the First Nations voice indicates to us in particular, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that that is a document for white Australia. Mm -hmm. It was conceived as a document for white Australia. We were excluded at that point in time. And Australia once again said that we ought not to be recognised in it. So um, that's something that I think we have come to accept, that the notion of Australia itself now, and white people have written this in the past week, is a legal fiction. Like without actually the formal acknowledgement of the original occupiers of the land, I think it creates a very complex narrative for us to navigate. But like I've said to our kids, we've been here since the first sunrise, we will be here to the last sunset, and there will be ways within which now, outside the Australian constitution, we assert our rights and our unique place in this world as Indigenous peoples. And I think when it comes to moments like this, to reckoning like this, we pursued reconciliation in good faith. It got rejected by the nation, but we will continue to rise up 
And we have to, I think we have an obligation now, um, given what we have been through and will continue to endure. Us, along with our allies, have a very big obligation to begin to have a reckoning with racism and understanding and expressing and I think educating our lived experiences for other Australians who clearly kind of, you know, we spoke about in the past, only 17% of Aussies had ever really socialised with First Nations peoples and using those results and that momentum forward, it's an upswell of supporters. Let's make that very clear. Mm -hmm. It is an upswell of supporters. We right on. We, We keep doing the work like our ancestors have always done. In the short term then, does the discussion move towards treaties or is that even now made harder because essentially a treaty is a a deal or an agreement between two equal parties, but it feels as though the parties are certainly not on equal footing at the moment. A, A treaty is an option or has that even been made more difficult? Well, I think treaties have always been and will continue to be pursued. The state of Victoria is well underway in that process. However, the no of the referendum result in Australia has given jurisdictions an excuse to start to back away from treaty negotiations. And so I think collectively what we need to do as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is to keep raising our voices, keep organising among ourselves and having those conversations as sovereign people because we are not going anywhere. Our existence is the resistance. And that is something that our children and our children's children can absolutely guarantee that we are not going anywhere. As someone who might be listening to us and has been listening to us from day dot, thank you for listening, firstly, and and like so many of us um, in the wake of this referendum result, feeling, I guess, hopeless, feeling helpless, First Nations, non-First Nations, whatever, what does that person do moving forward? What can they do in this moment? Uh, I am of the firm belief that reconciliation is dead. There's no way we can pursue that concept as a framework. If you, like, there's, there is no trust now in this democracy mm-hmm. um, in pursuing that. I do hope that businesses to continue in good faith in the work that they're doing, especially because companies have a lot more leverage and power to make decisions much quicker. They're not uh, confined by ideology, political ideology. And um, I do hope that those spaces continue to support Indigenous businesses grow. And just the fact that I think we need to really move towards a proper conversation and a constructive conversation about what it means for those allies um, who stood with us to be now anti-racist, mm-hmm. to be advocates in anti-racist spaces because what we will see, the right wing going, there's no such thing as race and it's like it's a construct. It is a white construct and it's not anything to do with colour but it absolutely has everything to do with power and privilege and I think that we have such a big conversation ahead of us in this country about the way in which race and power is weaponized against First Nations people. So I urge those people to come on that 
conversation with us because that's where the hard work now lies for a lot of us who have endured racism on a daily basis. We live in systems and we work in institutions where they disproportionately impact. Look at the incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. These are issues that we have to confront head on and we have to keep elevating First Nations voices because overwhelmingly, while the referendum was defeated by the nation, the 3%, the 3% of First Nations peoples, booth by booth, voted yes, that they wanted their voices heard. And allies can take so much away knowing that that is a fact, that is a truth, that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want their voices heard on their own terms. We thought we'd end this week's episode with something a little different. Teela, uh, you've, you've penned a poem And we thought, why not share it with everyone? Yes, this is a poem that I wrote this year. It's called Lost in Translation. I'm bewildered by you. You're bewildered by me. The difference is not the colour we see. The maps you draw, the landscape I see, you created something that should not be. Your hierarchy ideology my kinship of care philosophy. Even when we speak your English, it's a different dichotomy. But will you ever learn simplicity, stillness, silence to listen to Mother Earth? The lesson is in the yield to yearn. We are not a myth despite all your tricks. Your rule book is written. Our law is spoken. It has never been broken. You weaponize truth to appease white guilt. Your self-serving records are only words said, yet the land remains witness to all of the dead. And so too the good for all that we stood, a peoples whose love endures in the land, sky and seas. That is something you could never be. For it was the stars who navigated oceans so deep and the rivers that trace our interconnected pride. We know the moon only shines when the light hits the bright side. From Yerabegara, sunrise, to Girigang, sunset, may we find Galbalana, peace, for our ancestors to rest. I think the poem... I, couldn't, I didn't really have words. I think the poem... But I wrote a poem. ...sort of sums up where we are at a nation where there are two very different groups of people looking at things from a completely different point of view and sadly that gap between those groups of people is not decreasing. As always, we appreciate you listening, we appreciate you joining us and like I said before... We will absolutely be back. We will be speaking into these microphones that you can guarantee with another episode of Black Matters. Teela, as always, an absolute pleasure. Yalu.